Welcome to the Next Money Podcast, our regular look at the fintech scene, particularly here in the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, I'm Rob Finlay, the CEO of Next Money here in Singapore, and each week we ask a leading fintech entrepreneur or practitioner about their journey in changing financial services for the better. You can find out more about us and the latest fintech news at nextmoney.org, where some of you will know about our big conferences and meetups we've held across the world. Uh, contact us today to be part of those conferences and those meetups, also to be part of these podcasts and so much more. Today's guest is a very special person, Mr. Ned Phillips, the founder and CEO of a really exciting uh, new startup called Bamboo. Ned, I'm getting this right. It's a B2B robo-advisor started here in Singapore, and now it's growing across Asia. Welcome, Ned. Thank you very much. Uh, to be called exciting at almost age 50, I'm pretty happy about that. Yeah, you should take that. I will. Uh, <laughs> No, it's great to have you here, Ned. And um, look, your, your business is really making a lot of ways. But but let's go back first a bit, yep. and, and we'll get into the story of what Bamboo does and where Robo Advisory is at, because um, I think it's a hugely exciting industry or, or category in the industry. Sure. Which I think will really impact a lot of people. Yep. But tell us a bit about your story first. So. You've been in Asia a long time. I guess you're not from Asia originally. Tell us a bit about where you're from. Sure. So, I mean, interestingly, so as I said, nearly 50, but I've been in Asia 27 years. So, uh, university in Scotland, left there, and actually I was uh, selling insurance uh, door to door. And after six months of that, I realized that's probably not what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. So, I actually got a one-way ticket out to Asia in 89. And yeah, landed in Hong Kong. And uh, that turned into 14 years in Hong Kong. Uh, actually, one in India, one in Indonesia, and 13 now in, or 12 now in Singapore. So, yeah, it was kind of happenstance that brought me out of Hong Kong to start with. And, uh, yeah, it's been a great journey so far. What What were your memories or first impressions of Hong Kong? I suppose, you know, it's quite a contrast to, to Scotland, for example. You know, it was interesting. We came there and, you know, I actually was with my girlfriend, who's now my wife, and we were backpackers and still on the, you know, not a lot of money. So, stayed in one of the not quite five star uh, places to stay. And, you know, like I come from the countryside in Scotland and you turn up into the middle of Hong Kong and you're like, wow, this is crazy. But the interesting thing was the very next morning we got a job. Like this was in 1990, I got a job the next morning and I was like, okay, there's opportunity here. Like there's something here that we should stay. And yeah, we, we stayed there for 13, uh, 13 more years. So you obviously transitioned from what sounds like a backpacker start, but in yep. some pretty interesting roles across Asia. Tell us a couple about, I think, was E-Trade one of those? Yep. Sure. So, I mean, look, started in Hong Kong. As a backpacker, did just a range of jobs that, you know, teaching English and stuff like that. But then uh, kind of uh, ended up in publishing. So, first of all, in adventure sports publishing, but pretty quickly I ended up in financial publishing. So, we produced equity research and also contract publishing. So, we produced books for banks. And as luck would have it, well, actually, it sounds lucky now because it was my first entrepreneurial experience. Uh, It didn't work out because we took it through the Asian financial crisis, but every entrepreneur has to have the the, the tough beat. But uh, yeah, I ended up uh, working for a publishing company. We did a management buyout of half of it right before the Asian financial crisis. Uh, we took it through that. It didn't, uh, it, didn't, it didn't work, but that taught us a lot about cash flow and, and all the things, not all the things, but a range of things not to do in that area. Uh, but it was a great learning experience in publishing. And that was before you know, we were still producing stuff in paper. And I remember in 94, somebody said to us, we should put this online. I remember thinking, no, nah, no one's ever going to use that, right? <laughs> Who would ever want to do that? Right? Exactly. Really, yeah. It really wasn't. No, no one's ever going to do that, right? But as it turned out, as, as that company went through that journey, uh, obviously, it was clear that that wasn't going to work long term. And uh, I got a job at a small brokerage uh, selling equities and to institutions. And then about six months after we joined, we got purchased by E-Trade. 
And that was in 99 in the first dot-com boom. So I went through that dot-com boom journey with E-Trade, which was, you know, amazing, you know, and uh, I ended up running E-Trade across Asia. So I ended up being the managing director for institutional and retail for Hong Kong and Singapore. We had some JVs in Japan, India, and Australia. It was a fantastic journey. I mean, it's, you know, they were one of the original internet companies and they've had the ups and the downs, but it was great fun, isn't it? But how did you, you obviously sound like you've you've transitioned fairly quickly there from, I guess, being, you know, middle management to running yep. the show. I mean, that yep. must have been quite a bit of a leap for you to, to jump up top of the chain. Yeah. I mean, it was an interesting one. And I think, you know, look, in essence, I'm a sales guy, right? And uh, I think every, everyone knows what they are deep down. And I had been doing pretty well in sales. And, you know, and I think maybe disproportionately sales guys get promoted when there's an opportunity. They put themselves forward. There was a clear ability that, okay, someone needs to, to run this because the current guy was leaving. And, you know, I, I definitely put myself forward. And you're right. And I think at first going from the sales guy to running the shop, you know, I was a responsible officer in Hong Kong. So I'm the guy signing every everything, you know, and if anything goes wrong, it's, you know, it's, it, it's all on me. So yeah, it was a big step. But, you know, they were a great company and uh, I really love being there. And, you know, the where that journey was, you know, as the, the, the financial crisis, E-Trade then went back purely to online broking and came out of Asia a little bit. And, and then I kind of transitioned through to, I spent about six years in uh, building alternative stock exchanges. So worked with Credit Lyonnais to build a buy side uh, trading portal. Mm-hmm. And then with the Singapore exchange, we built a kind of alternative Asian stock exchange. So I suppose I've been in, I hate to say this, been in fintech for a long time. It was never called fintech, right? I was right? going to say, E-Trade must be one of the original current day versions of fintech. PayPal and even banks themselves could have called them that. But E-Trade was pretty pretty transformative. And now, obviously, you went to create stock exchanges. But what happened after that? Yeah, you know, I, then I, I took, took a couple of years where I was kind of doing some of my own investment, doing a bit of fintech consultancy. And the reason I ended up in Bamboo was that uh, eight securities in Hong Kong, uh, they were that was founded by two ex-E-Trade guys. Actually, the guy who gave me my job at E-Trade 20 years ago, Matthias Hello, he's a great guy. They run E-Trade and they were like, look, Ned, we're going to launch a robo. You interested in being a consultant for a year? And I was like, what's, what's, what's a robo? They're like, come on. You know, we know that there's no margin left in equity trading. And, you know, look, I'm an equity guy, but the reality is the margins in equity trading now are, right. are pretty. What were the numbers? Like 20 years ago would have been, you know, 10, 20% fees and so on? Or, or... Well, so when I started in institutional trading, we could get 100 basis points. So 1%, but we're doing institutional trading. So if somebody gives you a $50 million block to trade, you know, you're taking 50 grand, right? And that's for a one-off trade, right? So you could make really good... By the time I left the equity trading in the exchange we were running, it was one basis point. So it would come down 99%. Right. Whereas I think in the wealth space, there's still there's still margin. I always say to people in, when banks ask about what's, what should we do in fintech, I'm like, don't look where your tech is bad. Look where your margins are big. No one's after you for your low margin business. We're after you for your high margin business, right? And, and in the wealth space, it's high. So I spent a year with eight securities. I was a B2B guy for them looking at opportunities. And in that one year, so that was all of 2015, it was pretty clear. There was a lot of B2B demand and uh, a lot of investment dollars floating around and Robo was interesting, but it was still kind of formative. And then, you know, I, I thought I should have a go at this myself. And that's really how I ended up. So was there, a, like some entrepreneurs have those single moments where they have a realization or was it more a buildup of insights you thought, you know, these things combined create a clear vision for you? So eight went through, they were raising some money and there was a possible role going forward. And I think I saw that, again, coming back to this point, E-Trade was fintech. We didn't think about it then. And I looked around at, at what was going on and, 
you know, a lot of young guys doing fintech, which is great. We were all young once. Well, a lot of guys hopefully listen to this still are. But I realized, you know what? I don't think it was a single moment, but it was that point that I realized, you know what? I think I could have a decent go at this. And and I think it was just in the beginning of 15 when I'd been with eight for one year and I saw there's a clear model here. And I don't have all the pieces, but I have a lot of the pieces that, to do this. And yeah, I don't think it was one single day, but it was quite a clear realization. I could have a go at this. And it was clear it was B2B because the B2C acquisition cost was high. Mm. And and coming from E-Trade, even though I'm not a wealth specialist, like, you know, for 20 years, there's a lot of similarities between equity trading and wealth. And yeah, I think it was over the period, just literally of a week or so, I was like, I'm going to have a go at this. And so what's so it's a B2B business, though. So give us the, the, the pitch in the in the use case parlance or language, how do you describe what Bamboo does? Yep. And uh, I think I use this at FinTech Finals as my little elevator pitch. So we're, we've we've learned that uh, an elevator pitch is an incredibly difficult thing to do. So we use this now. So 25 years ago, all stock trading was offline. And I think, you know, being part of E-Trade in the last 25 years, most stock trading is online. Today, most of wealth is offline. It's an offline experience for the majority of people. And it's going to go online. And Bamboo builds the software and the products and the platforms to help banks, financial institutions, and more and more of the non-financial institutions get into this space. So we're an enabler for people who want to play in the digital wealth space. And is this something that the incumbents have been doing forever, or are they relatively new to this kind of thing? It's really interesting, you know. And, and so, like, I can't can't JP or JP Morgan yep. or Credit Suisse or a big bank like that create their own pretty sure. quickly? Sure. Ah, so create their own, well, not yes, quickly. not quickly. Right. So, so you know, in, in all of business, if you have enough time and money, you can do every, anything, right? But people want less time and less money. Big banks are full of great people, right? We know this, right? And But the reality is, is that the bigger you get, the harder it is to create things quickly. Not because the talent of the people decreases, it's an, and it's not, an, it, it's, it's not a direct inverse relationship there. But the reality is, is that uh, for them to create quickly. And so, for example, our first client was four or five months from signing to launching, including integration. And I think, so there's nothing intellectually stopping a bank doing this. But I think startups can offer it cheaper and faster. And secondly is that nobody knows exactly what the digital wealth should be. So haven't banks been doing this for a long time? I'm sure you know, everybody's able to access their funds online, but it's more a factual experience. You go online, you see, I own this. But there's no real journey, right? you what they should be saying is, hey, look, Rob, we can see what you own. We can see what you have. Why don't you do this? Yeah. We know you've got three kids. We know you've got this. You're probably saving for a house. Let's have a guesstimate. You know, they, that's where I think they haven't done yet. And that's that journey of enabling the customer. Look, some banks 100% will build it themselves. But I think some startups have the ability to innovate pretty quickly and give them a chance to get ahead in that space. Yeah, I think you're right. I remember five, 10 years ago when I first started in, in financial services that some of the conversations we had back then are still being had now. And it seems a bit crazy that there are some things that haven't been brought together. Data is definitely one of them. Yep. Either a single picture of you that's easy for the bank and for the end user to take advantage of, but also for partners and third parties, like like maybe like you guys or or others. Um, so that, that, that lag is still there. Um, but what, so what's a typical use case for your clients of Bamboo? What, what's the best way they can utilize what you guys have? Sure. So, I mean, we split it into two areas. So there's financial institutions. So people who are already selling wealth products, right? 
And for them, it is a use case primarily to start with of our user journey. So what is the user journey that they can offer to their clients? So when we say B2B, B2B to C. So we go to a bank and say, who are your clients? What wealth journey are they currently on? Can we improve that? And there are some banks that we can't improve on, absolutely. But I think everybody's on that journey to improve it. And maybe in a fintech podcast, it's not the best place to say it. But the reality is the bar in finance is still relatively low for a customer experience, particularly in the wealth space. It's still predominantly offline. There's still a lot of hurdles to go through. And I think, you know, it's it's not we're not going to solve it overnight. It's not suddenly, oh, this is going to be like Uber in one second. It's all perfect, right? It's, it's a different uh, way of doing it. So we go to banks, we look at their user journey, we show them what we have. So what we've built is a, a range of digital wealth building blocks from you know risk profiling to portfolio construction to rebalancing to calculation and fees. We don't execute the trade. So we don't then take the portfolio and execute it, but we send it to the execution agent to do. So the use case for the financial institutions is can we improve their digital wealth customer? But we've built for retail, so for the people with $10, and we've built for private banks for people with 10 million. And we're kind of a bit strange. We're a robo company that's not build a robo. I don't think we can just build one robo because it's different for everybody, mm, right? Yeah. A, a guy's got 10 million bucks and a guy's got 10 bucks. It's a completely different journey. And so we have those building blocks. And separately, you know, we're talking to a lot of consumer brands. So I think telcos will be in the, cons- in the wealth space. I think the taxi companies. You saw the Ubal fund, Alibaba's you know, fun. That's in essence a robo. That's the one word you'll hear more and more, robo saver. In Asia, robo saver is a much bigger market than robo advisor will ever be. Absolutely. You know, getting people who currently spend all their money and don't save, Mm. let's just start them saving for a goal. Once they're saving, you can get them investing. So yeah, we we go to the non-financial brands and try to show them their digital wealth exists and can be part of their experience for their current customer base and for the existing financial institutions we try to improve on what they have. So instead of preparing for today, I was thinking a bit about what I see as the Asian wealth landscape. And there's yep. still this huge diversity here, I think, between, and I'll, I'll generalize by saying it's the incumbent or the traditional way of advising clients on what they need to invest in is either boiled down to a very persuasive coffee session or it's a very expensive golf game, yeah. or it's a friend of a friend of a friend, or my my parents have used this banker, therefore I'm going to buy from him. Yep. And quite often <clears throat> advice is taken based on something other than what might be applicable to me. Yep. At the other end of the spectrum might be these new technologies that completely focus on me and my data yep. and me and my objectives and what I need, yep. and it removes a bit of the human. Do you think that, that spectrum is getting wider or are the banks re- jumping forward now and really learning that this is something they need to really jump on board? It's a, it's, a, it's a great question because you're right. I think it is quite, you know, diversified in that you're right. So the more money you have, the more service you get. The less money you have, the less service you get, right? right. I mean, we shouldn't generalize by saying the older you are, the more golf games you want. The younger you are, the more mobile phone-based you want it to. Maybe, is that true or not? Well, yeah, you know, look, there are, there are and again, there are old, I'm not going to say poor, there are old people who don't have wealth. There are young people who do have wealth, right? But in general, I think that the... Well, I don't know. What's the older generation? I'm 50, so let's call that older generation. They're still willing to use digital wealth, whereas people look at the millennials and say they're more likely to use it. I I actually think that you couldn't be – if you were a private bank and said to your customer, no matter how old they were, we have no digital platform whatsoever, that's not acceptable, right? Is it different from a mobile app that maybe gamifies what you do with your $10? Sure. Absolutely, right? But they – so you're right. A a private banking – is always focused on the relationship where a digital, and so one we've built an intelligent digital advisor, 
the stuff that is not value-add from a human point of view. So an RM should be more efficient. An average RM, 200 clients, right? They can't call 200 clients every day. So can we make that more efficient? That's one part. And I think, so so one thing I, when we really trained in 2001, we thought we were super cool. And in our app, uh, well, it wasn't an app in our, I don't know what the right terminology was, in our, in our, in our, on our platform, on our web, uh, we took away all humans, right? So we said, this is chatbot, and this is 15 years ago, right? Mm. We thought we were great. We thought this would be the coolest thing ever, and it didn't work at all. Because the reality is, is that if something goes wrong, even today, I don't think chatbots are at the place that can solve somebody's issue fully to the extent. We're getting much closer than we were 15 years ago. I don't think you can take the human out of the equation. I don't think this is a zero-sum game. That We will always have wealth managers. They will focus more on the higher end. So those golf games are staying. But that RM should be able to give a better service to these guys. Yep. And at the lower end, you know, if I had $10 and I walked into a bank and said, hey, I'd like a discussion with a financial advisor, I'm not only not getting a golf game, I'm not getting a coffee, I'm not even getting talked to, right? True. But if you had a, a mobile phone in China, you could put money into the... Alibaba Correct. Central Fund, and that goes into this huge pool, and they raise what eighty billion or ninety billion dollars in three months or so. Correct, and and then you're like, okay, so that's that one to many, and you can do that, right? And I think even with the Alibaba Fund, I think they will move up the value chain, and people with a million dollars will put money into that fund. Right. So it's interesting, you know. I think there's a lot of crossover. So I don't think it's separating. I think banks just need to understand. You need to have some digital product, but you don't need to believe that humans are going to be cut out. No, I think so. I think, I think the proof will be in the results. I mean, you know, a very wealthy investor that may not have thought of this as a tool they could use before will see someone potentially, you know, person A will see person B and say, wow, with only $1,000, you've got, you know, 20% return on your investment. How come I don't have that as well? Yep. So hopefully that might be the case. Just to go back, so you've, you've opened an office in Hong Kong now, is correct. That correct? Yes. So tell us about the contrast you see between Singapore and Hong Kong in terms of the wealth space. Are you seeing any differences or lots of similarities between Singapore and Hong oh. Kong as markets? Yeah, look, I think the biggest differences that we're going to see is in the digital journey for wealth, if you cannot do digital KYC, it's an, in, in, the, in the, let's say, the millennial retail space, it's, a non, it's pretty much a non-starter. So we have to get to that digital KYC point. Now, I think both Singapore and Hong Kong are heading there. I, I, I think from what I can tell, Singapore is you know on that journey. And I think that's going to be a big change. Who gets to that point first? Because I think that's a really important point. Um, obviously, both regulators are working hard to move forward uh, in that area. Uh, in the wealth space, obviously, Singapore is a very private banking focused market. And as I said, we have retail, mass affluent, and private banking. And so Actually, I think from the digital private banking space, Singapore has a huge opportunity. I really do bigger than perhaps in Hong Kong from that side. Uh, Hong Kong, I think, will develop. It's interesting what in Hong Kong, as Alibaba or Yubao or these different funds come down in there, I think they will become the dominant. The dominant. So I think, the as we all know, fintech in China is light years ahead. Mm. And I think as that impacts Hong Kong, that's going to be the driver. So the red packets from WeChat mm. or the Yubao Fund, as that makes its way into the Hong Kong psyche as something they can use, I think there will be a movement towards using those uh, mainland-based fintech firms, which I think is not the same case here. So that's the kind of biggest differential I see. Great. So last couple of questions, I think. So first one is about to project forward quite a long way. So beyond 2020, I mean, by 2030, for example, is this, do you think, going to become the standard way that we'll make investment decisions on either... A quite small sort of 
small level, as in what can I do with this hundred dollars versus yep. I want to retire in thirty years. What do I do? Do you think this will be now? It'll become the norm to interact with these kinds of technologies. It, so you're talking twenty thirty, so thirteen years time. I mean, it simply has to. The idea that a bank who basically knows everything about you and can see your salary, your spending, your incomings and outgoings, the fact that with all that data, they wouldn't say to you, Mm. this is where our advice, to me seems almost not impossible, but I think that is where it has to go. So the idea of combining a, a mint and a future advisor that it's, look, we know what your incomings are. We know when we have true APIs across everyone, so that this idea, if you put account aggregation, personal financial management and wealth together, and if you said, look, as you know, I made my dad stand up, you know, the idea of machine learning, the idea of deep learning, that we couldn't use all that data to give you a better outcome. Because here's the thing, I think, you know, we all peg to markets. What's my outcome compared to markets? That's not the way. If I said on a wealth platform, I want to buy a house in five years, my only goal is, did I buy a house in five years? Whether the markets went up or down, yeah. I still want my house in five years. Yep. So I actually think wealth changes. It says, my goal is my goal. And if I hit my goal, yay. If I didn't, boo, right? And by 2030, I really believe that everyone truly has an independent portfolio that is goal-based. And we all say, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to achieve. And of course, if markets go down, we all miss our goals. I get that. Yeah. But in reality, for most people, when the markets go up and down, that shouldn't, you shouldn't, know, shouldn't matter. they still want to get their goal, right? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I think by 2030, we all have individual portfolio tied to our income and spending and we're guided that that extra holiday, that extra spend, means you save a little bit slower. No, I, I, just to jump, I, th- I, th- I think the same transformation will obviously happen to insurance as well, where it's more about sure. what do I need and why am I going through this sort of archaic structure? But we'll get to insure tech in another episode, of course. Yeah. Just to finish off, so you were in Hong Kong with us at the Next Money uh, FinTech Finals in, we in January. Yep. Uh, with 24 startups pitched uh, for a whole afternoon. We had two days of a huge event there with about 1,000 people. And you very comprehensively won the Best Early Stage Startup Award. Well done. Thank you very much. Uh, Apart from using secret props like your dad, as you mentioned before, genius move. Tell us a bit about what that experience was like being, I guess, on stage with a really interesting mix of startups from around the world. We had had sort of Mexico and Sweden and Brazil and Australia and Japan and a a great range of startups. Yeah, no, look, thank you, Rob. And uh, yeah, look, it was a great event. And, you know, that's the type of stuff for us as a B2B. What we've learned is that, People will sign up a B2B platform if their peers have heard of it. So if I work at a big bank and I'm going to use a startup, you probably ask your peer another bank, have you heard of those guys? So events like this are enormously important. I mean, this is my personal belief. This is what we do to cement bamboo. Standing up and winning, hey, look, uh, you know, I, I would like to say it wasn't enormously enjoyable. It was, it was fun. Did we want to win? Absolutely. We believe it really helps. You'll see at the bottom of our email signature now when I email you, we have FinTech Finals. So what was it like? Look, there's a lot of great startups there. We, what we really try to focus on, and I think I put up there is, I think too many startups focus on the product rather than the profit. You've got to have, you've got to make some money in the end. And look, it was fascinating, some great startups. And you did, you brought people, as you say, from Mexico, Sweden. I noticed a guy before us from the Philippines, a guy after us from America. I was like, wow, there's people from everywhere. Um, look, it's a great experience. It's good learning. You had a good crowd of people there. You know, we got, we got people coming up to us afterwards and, uh, you know, talking to us and saying, okay, so it's funny, you know, the fear of missing out. If other people say you seem to be on the right journey, and so that's what it gave us. Look, you know, yes, my dad's been in neural networks since the beginning of time. Yes, I've never understood what he said, and I still don't. (laughs) But 
that's and I think when he took the microphone from you and started going on, I was like, oh my word, here we go. No, it, was, it was good. We all could learn a few things, to be honest. It was good. Yeah, but but you're right. Look, I think that uh, you've, you've got to be a little bit different. I do believe that. There's a lot of startups out there. Look, we know the reality. Nine out of 10 fail, right? Maybe it's eight out of 10. So mm-hmm. in, in statistically, you know, we're not going to make it. So we've got to do all we can. Yeah. So yeah, we use events. I think the stuff that you do is great. Uh, as we've said, so next year we want to win the growth stage and then the mature stage and then best in show. And uh, we'll keep on going, you know. That sounds good. I can see if we can arrange that. But uh, look, thanks very much for today, Ned. Appreciate no you coming in and having a chat here on the Next Money podcast. That's it for today's show. Many thanks to our guest, Ned from Bamboo. Go check out bamboo.life That's right. to learn more. Thanks very much. Be sure to check out the, the latest uh, Next Money news and conferences at nextmoney.org. We'd love to have your interest in uh, being on this show. We want you to be a guest. We'd love some sponsorship. We'd love you to be a part of the, the content we have here. We'll speak to you next time on the Next Money podcast. Thanks very much. <laughs> <laughs>